This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to Late Boomers. And I'm Mary Elkins. Today on Late Boomers, our guest is Rick Korn, founder of In Plain View Entertainment. He's a film and TV producer, writer, and director who creates socially conscious documentaries that matter in the world today. Our listeners may remember that we interviewed Tom Chapin about the Harry Chapin documentary, when in doubt, do something. And that was conceived and directed by our guest today, Rick Korn. Welcome, Rick. Say hello to our listeners. Hello, listeners. Thank you for having us. We're having me. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous. We always like to ask our guests about how they started on their career path. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I had uh, not the conventional uh, career path. Uh, I I started uh, my career uh, as a marketing executive right out of uh, college. Uh, Actually, there was a stop into the garment center for a little while. Uh, Like all New York kids, you know, you knew someone in the neighborhood whose dad worked in the garment center, and that's how you got your first job. Uh, And then I uh, went to work for my father, who was a a kind of a big-time marketing executive executive who created database marketing uh, before people knew about database databases or database marketing. And I worked uh, not for him, but in that industry for a little while and started my own business. And uh, I sold it to a company called Whittle Communications, which is a really interesting, was a really interesting company out of Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, that was started by Christopher Whittle. Um, but they're best known for uh, creating Channel One, which oh. was a broad, broad broadcast into high schools uh, nationwide. I and, remember. And I was part of that. I was a partner in the company. Uh, I worked uh, more on something called the Special Report Network, which was a broadcast into pediatrician and uh, and obstetricians' uh, offices. And we had um, Dr. Nancy Snyderman as one of our hosts. And Joan London was the other host. And they talked about things that related to uh, the needs of, of moms and dads who were about to either just had a baby or about to have a baby. And it came with a magazine. So I did that for a while. And then um, uh, was my boss there left to become the CEO of Home Shopping Network. Oh, and he yeah. asked me to join him. Uh, and uh, the interesting thing about Home Shopping Network uh, was that when uh, we got in there, the reason why we were brought in was that most of the company was under federal indictment for fraud. Oh. They, had, they had recently gone public 
And so if you wanted your product on air, uh, you put a boat in the buyer's driveway or, you know, uh, you send some kind of gift. Uh, and um, so that was an interesting. Uh, uh, but uh, the thing about uh, Home Shopping Network, uh, my job was uh, I, I was responsible for all the on-air marketing. So it was it was it was 24 hours a day of live TV. Back then, we had three different networks, all live, uh, going at the same time. So for, for me, looking back at it, although I was tortured working there, uh, it taught me a lot about uh, how to produce. Uh, and if you can produce anything live, you can, you're ahead of the game. It, uh, and uh, it really helped uh, propel what I ended up doing next, uh, which was becoming a partner in a company called Television Production Partners, which was the first modern day branded entertainment company. We, we partnered with 10 of the nation's largest advertisers. They gave us tens of millions of dollars to create family oriented films and TV programming. Uh, and we, um, we did a film called Hank Aaron Chasing the Dream. Uh, which was nominated for both an Emmy and an Oscar. Uh, and uh, uh, we lost that year. Uh, Steven Spielberg had come out with the diary of Anne Frank. And so uh, we did not beat Steven Spielberg, but we were really honored to, uh, uh, to, to be part of, uh, you know, be included in the Oscars and the Emmys. And uh, we won a Peabody award for that. So that, got that segues right into my next question, because sure. I was about to talk about your Oscar and Emmy nominations and your Peabody Award. Um, tell us a little more, a little bit more. Sure. Um, well, um, it, it was the business model was really unique at the time. We were somewhat controversial because uh, we um, because the advertisers owned the program. So when you went to a network, it kind of cut out at that time, cut out their sales people. Um, the programming people loved us because we were literally giving them a, a, a film or a TV show, whatever we were producing at the time. So they loved us. Uh, but we were, it was very controversial because uh, the sales groups at other net, at networks were really, really nervous about us uh, because we literally had... 10 of the nation's largest advertisers. So from the advertiser standpoint, what was unique about it is, you know, why pay uh, a half a million dollars for a 30 second spot where, when you can give us a half a million dollars and we create a film for you, you know? So uh, the value proposition uh, for, uh, for advertisers was, was great. Uh, so we were somewhat of a threat. The thing uh, that I loved about the film was that it wasn't just about Aaron's baseball career. Um, it was about his civil rights, uh, work he did in civil rights with Martin Luther King, um, which we found fascinating. And most people didn't know that about, uh, about Hank. And when Hank started to approach the home run record, Babe Ruth's home run record, there were threats against his life. If you hit that home run, we'll, we'll kill you while you round the bases. And uh, and that was because of his civil civil rights work. And, you know, a black man, uh, you know, uh, doing one up on a white 
uh, idol was uh, was not a um, you know a safe space for Hank. Um, but Hank, until his death a couple of weeks ago, uh, was just this amazing person. And out of that film uh, came the um, uh, Hank Aaron uh, Foundation, uh, and um, uh, and and that was probably the the first time that I experienced how you can create a film and help people. And, and, and so everything I've done for the most part since then has had that component to it, <laughs> including the Harry Chapin film. And I'm sure that's uh, wonderful. And, and other films that we work on. We always have that component in the Harry Chapin film where actually uh, I gave away two thirds of the ownership to Harry's two charities, the Harry Ch Chapin Foundation and, and Why Hunger. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, I, I also would love to ask you about your work producing live events and benefit concerts, such as the ones you did with Bruce Springsteen, Bon Jovi, Eric Clapton, sure. and Joan Jett, I'm sure others. Tell us a little yes. bit about how that works. Well, I got into that um, is uh, af after uh, television production partners, uh, I got a phone call from uh, Dick Clark, oh. uh, who, um, who said, uh, he was going to, I'd worked with Dick at Home Shopping Network. Oh. And uh, he wanted to introduce me to a friend of his who's a music artist and he can use some help. His business was a mess. And, you know, obviously the older music artists uh, from the 50s and the 60s got ripped off by everyone. And his, his business was a mess. And I said, you know, I don't, you know, I said, Dick, I don't know anything about the music business. Uh, he said, well, you don't have to, you know, you're, you really need, need your help from, you know, just from a business standpoint. And I think, I think it would work for you. And I kind of forgot about it. And a couple of months came by and we get a phone call at home from a, a gentleman by the name of Carl Perkins. And Carl wrote Blue Suede Shoes. He uh, was a part of the Million Dollar Quartet with, at Sun Records with uh, Elvis and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis and Carl. And um, uh, we spoke on the phone and it sounded like he was looking for a manager. And I, I, you know, he said, listen, I'm, I'm doing a new album with Paul McCartney and George Harrison and, and uh, Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson and all these amazing people. And, um, and, you know, my business is a mess. I, 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 you know, I have a major problem with the record company. It was just a, a total mess. And I recommended a couple of people to him that I knew in the music business and said, you ought to give them a call and gave them, gave him their information. And that was the end of it. Uh, about uh, three or four months later, he called me up and, and he said, uh, well, I picked the person I want to help me. I said, that's great. Who'd you pick? He goes, you. <laughs> I, said, I said, I said, Carl, I don't know anything about music. You know, he said, that's why I picked you. <laughs> oh, perfect. Uh, perfect. And, and we, um, we set out, Carl was an incredibly um, nice person, uh, probably to a fault. Uh, and, but his passion, he was a, a terribly abused child. He grew up in, in, in uh, the cotton fields of Tennessee. He was, uh, and he learned to play music from the black people in the fields with him who would sing gospel songs while they pick cotton. And, 
a, a, a black man by the name of Uncle John who taught him how to play the guitar. Uh, and, um, you know, he's just this incredibly nice guy. And he wanted to not only do this album, but he wanted to do documentaries and he wanted to do benefit concerts uh, to raise money for uh, his uh, center that he had created called the Carl Perkins Center for the Prevention of Child Abuse which at the time was the largest center of its kind in the country. And we did benefit concerts. Uh, uh, and uh, I, you know, produce, I would produce them. Uh, it was very similar for me to producing a, um, you know, a, a spot, believe it or not, on Home Shopping Network. It, you know, had mm. similar uh, feel to it uh, and techniques. And uh, we started uh, doing that, and um, we were very fortunate to, uh, uh, you know, he was loved by all the Beatles, uh, and uh, we uh, did a documentary uh, called My Old Friend uh, with Paul McCartney uh, that really started out as Paul was playing in Memphis and invited Carl to come and play a song or two with him while he was in Memphis and, and uh, uh, Carl said, Hey, can we interview? We're doing a documentary. Can we interview you? They ended up sitting down before this concert and talking for two and a half hours. And Paul was about 45 minutes late <laughs> to get on but stage. You were there with your camera, right? Well, we had multiple cameras. Oh yeah. And they, the love that the two of them had, it was, it is so great. We, we sold it to uh, um, Country Music Channel at the time, uh, which was- What's the name of that documentary? It's called, it's called My Old Friend. Oh, My uh, Old Friend. Yeah, you said that. Yeah. Sorry. And, yeah. and so we did, uh, we did the documentary uh, to, um, to partner with the album that we had just come out. And the album was called Go Cat Go. Oh. And on, on that album <clears throat> was Paul McCartney, with a brand new song called My Old Friend, uh, a, a beautiful brand new song that Carl did with George Harrison called uh, Distance Makes No Difference With Love. Uh, and um, and just, you know, uh, you know uh, we had Paul Simon on that album, uh, John Fogarty, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Abano, uh, a never before released version of Jimi Hendrix in Blue Suede Shoes, which blew my mind. Uh -huh. uh, it's just this incredible version of Blue Suede Shoes. Uh, if you like Jimi Hendrix, you'll love it. Uh, and um, we were, um, we, we uh, did and helped out with a, a concert from Montserrat in London with Paul McCartney and Eric Clapton and Phil Collins and uh, Elton John, Sting, uh, and uh, that was called the concert from Montserrat. Uh, the Isle, island of Montserrat um, uh, had a terrible vo volcano back in, I think it was 1997 or uh, 98, uh, right after uh, Princess Diana had been killed. And so uh, Paul and Eric and uh, George Martin uh, had a studio there called Air Studio in in Montserrat. Uh, that uh, it was perched up on a, uh, a hill, but the the rest of the island was literally destroyed yeah. uh, by the volcano. So everyone got together to do this benefit, 
and it was just right after Princess Diana died, and uh, we did it at Royal Albert Hall, and uh, Carl was amazing. He came out, and he did Blue Suede Shoes and a whole bunch of other songs with McCartney and the whole whole band, and uh, and uh, the 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 close of the concert was Hey Jude. <laughs> and, and they pull Carl out on stage and he didn't know the song <laughs> but I said it's easy just the only person on the planet yeah. 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 on that um, note on that note do you have some great stories or two to tell about working with all these fabulous people McCartney called Carl Perkins well I didn't you know I didn't get to work with McCartney that much only through Carl but um, Carl was so such a kind-hearted person um and was just loved by particularly the beatles they they recorded six of carl's songs and the best story out of that was uh when the beatles were you know still playing in germany um carl and um chuck berry uh were touring and the beatles came to their concert and afterwards they came backstage and they didn't know who the Beatles, they weren't famous at that time. And they invited them to go to uh, the, the um, you know, to the record studio the next day and record with them. And uh, Chuck, Chuck Berry never showed up, but Carl did. So they ended up recording six of Carl's songs. And uh, they were incredibly, incredibly close, particularly George Harrison and 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 Carl, they were like brothers. Uh, and and um, uh, the the best story that I can tell you about that uh, is also a sad story. But um, uh, Carl, shortly after releasing the album and doing the concert for Montserrat and being on, you know, we I got him on the Tonight Show with Jay Leno, and uh, he did uh, you know all these shows that were popular at the time. Uh, shortly after that, we broke we we broke off for Christmas, and Carl had a massive stroke, and oh. eventually died a few a uh, few weeks later. And uh, so, um, you know, I went down to Jackson, Tennessee, and uh, literally uh, put put the whole of you know I'll call it an event because uh, we had Winona Judd uh, singing and Garth Brooks and. Johnny Cash was there, but he was a little bit ill. And uh, we got a, I got a phone call uh, from um, George Harrison's wife, Olivia, saying that George was at the Mayo Clinic um, for his throat cancer and that he wanted to come to, you know, come to the funeral. Would we pick him up at the, would I pick him up at the airport? And I did. I, I, I used Carl's car and we got in the car and uh, I picked up George and, uh, they come off a little private plane, and the pilot comes out and asks for my social security number to prove that it was me. And they got in the car, and and uh, it, we went to the memorial service, which was on a campus in a chapel on a campus, uh, and there were just people for miles all along the campus on the outside, and they broadcasted it on the outside. No one knew that George was coming. And we snuck in through the basement and uh, went in this little side alcove. But when we were in the basement, Winona was down there and she saw him. And so towards the end uh, of, 
the funeral, she goes, hey, George, is there a song that you want us to sing of Carl's? And, and, and would you come up here and sing it with us? And George got up and went up there. You can find this online. Um, it was at Lam Lambert University. And he got up there and Olivia turns to me, he goes, he can't, he can't sing. You know, he, he, you know, he hasn't sung in over a couple of years because of his, his health issues. And, um, he got up there and, um, sang, grabbed the hand of the guitar and he sang your true love. And the entire place just went nuts. <laughs> you know? I guess so. It, it was incredible. And everyone stood and started singing along, and it was uh, was an amazing, uh, amazing moment. Um, and if you don't mind the long part of the story, but uh, he, we went back down to the basement, and uh, uh, by that point, everyone was down there. And a guy comes over to me, he goes, "Jerry Lee Lewis wants to meet George." And I said, "Well." I'll go over and ask George. You know, I'm sure he would want to. George goes, I've never met Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah, I'd love to meet Jerry Lee Lewis. So um, so I said, yeah, George would love to. Bring him down, you know, because there were paparazzi on the outside. It was craziness on the outside. And uh, I was trying to shield George from that because he was sick. And he, the guy goes up, comes back down, and he goes, no. He goes, no, he wants George to come up and see him. So we go, we go upstairs. He goes, yeah, I'll go. George was just such a delightful guy. He goes upstairs. I want to really meet Jerry Lee Lewis. And he goes upstairs and he, and he, and there's Jerry Lee Lewis standing outside of a limousine and he, they shake hands. Jerry Lee Lewis gets back into the limousine, doesn't say a word and they take off. <laughs> and there's a, cover there's a picture on people magazine of them shaking hands and there's a picture of me in the background looking rather pissed off um but <laughs> i bet <laughs> and then he, uh, george didn't want to go um to the funeral um to the cemetery rather and so we went back to carl's house and he said hey you know i'd love to see what music carl was playing you know maybe we can do what we did with john lennon and you know and and, and take one of his songs and then the rest of the us can put our voice and and uh and guitar on it and um so we went to go into his studio which was a pool house off the side of the pool and the door was locked and we ended up breaking into the window <laughs> and climbing <laughs> in the window you guys to, are uh, bad to boys music. <laughs> and we found music but that's uh so it was Carl to a long story short. Um, I hope you're good at editing. Um, uh, a long story short. No, um, I can't edit any of this. I love no. it. No. <laughs> uh, a long story short, uh, we, um, you know, that was um, my first real with Carl indoctrination into creating benefit concerts. And, and uh, uh, Carl died, after Carl died, I started doing work with Why Hunger. Uh, well, prior to Carl's death, every Hungerthon, we would, uh, and Hungerthon is, uh, I should say that Why Hunger is the organization that Harry Chapin started with his partner, Bill Ayers, uh, Father Bill Ayers, who was a, a priest at the time. They started an organization uh, called Why Hunger and, in 1975. 
Uh, and uh, uh, but they had these hungerthons on the radio, which are still on the radio to this day. They're on Sirius Radio and they're on virtually every radio station every year. They come on around Thanksgiving and they play music and they auction off items. And we would give White Hunger autographed blue suede shoes from Carl, uh, autographed guitars. And I became very close with the folks at Why Hunger, Bill Ayers in particular. And um, so a few years later, they asked me if I would be willing to produce a Hungerthon concert uh, with Gary Talent from the E Street Band. Uh, Gary, Gary's the bass player in the E Street Band. And uh, uh, so he said, look, you know, we got Springsteen and and we, we've got uh, John Bon Jovi and Joan Jett and a whole bunch of other people. And uh, I said, yeah, you know, I'd love to do it. He said, well, maybe you can bring some of the Sun Record guys and we can do like <laughs> a, a Beale Street. You know, Beale, Beale uh, is the main drag where Sun Records is in Memphis. Uh, we can do Beale Street meets E Street. So I was <laughs> able to get Elvis's original band. And some of his bandmates from uh, from his his Vegas days, and um, we planned this concert for October eighteenth, two thousand one. And uh, on nine eleven, now we we were doing the concert at the Count Basie Theater in Red Bank, New Jersey, which is right here on the Jersey Shore. And um, when nine eleven happened, we lost in our town. Uh, 150 people because of that ferry that goes uh, from our dock to Wall Street. So, you know, all the Wall Street people, um, uh, many of the Wall Street people in our town uh, were killed that day. Oh. And so we, uh, I um, approached uh, Bruce and Bill Ayers and Gary and said, and, and Bruce at the time lived in the same town as I did, where we lost all these these people. And uh, we said, look, we got to do something for these the fam the nine eleven families, and you know maybe turn this into a uh, uh, you know a charity for those families. And we created something called uh, the uh, Alliance of Neighbors. We got all our neighbors together, and we ex we extended the one. Benefit concert came free. Plus, Bruce did a kid show for all the children whose parents died in the Trade Center and their schools. And Bruce just did alone, just did a solo show mm. that was we didn't film, but was was incredible. The other nights, the three nights was broadcast live. And um, we had Bruce and John and Phoebe Snow, if you remember Phoebe, amazing voice, oh, yeah. poetry sure. man. Uh, oh, and, yeah. Uh, and and uh, uh, Felix Cavalieri from the Rascals. Mm. Uh, love love that voice. Oh, amazing. Um, it's a beautiful morning. He didn't sing that one that day. Um, yeah. But oh, he was man. amazing. Uh, and... Uh, the Smithereens, who you may or may not know, but they're big here in New Jersey, uh, and um, uh, a bunch of other incredible artists, new and old, 
and we did these shows that were four hour long shows. We did it three nights in a row. And the first night we had all the families there. What kind of a venue were you in? It was the Count Basie Theater. Uh, oh. at, the, at the time, it sat about 2,800 people. Uh, and uh, it was, uh, we raised instantaneously when the tickets went on sale. This is just a couple of weeks after 9-11, right? Yeah. Instantly um, sold out in like five minutes. And we would add shows and it would sell out and sell out. And, <laughs> and uh, literally in a few minutes, the people paid a pretty penny. Uh, to do this. And we got the entire community involved with doing this show. And it was was amazing. And I will tell you that Bruce Springsteen and his wife, Patty Scalfer, met with every single one of those families, every single one of them. And not just the hello, how are you? But he spent time with them. He let them, they let them speak as long as they needed to. It took them two nights to finish everybody, but um, yeah, it was uh, it was a, a life changing moment for me um, because um, many of the people we we knew a lot of the families, obviously, a lot of the people I was coaching pop Warner football and uh, at the time, uh, and uh, so we lost a lot of our coaches and. Oh. Uh, and so it was just and and as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, the trade center is in our skyline. So, you know, yeah. that song uh, that Bruce Springsteen does called Empty Sky is about, you know, there's a, a part where you go over this bridge into Seabright towards the ocean and you look to your left and typically you would see you know, in your, you know, the the beautiful trade center towers. And uh, when they were gone, it was a really eerie, eerie feeling. Um, So from there, um, I, um, the, the bunch of the widows who I had been gotten to know well, um, I literally, one of the things that Bruce said uh, was that if, if you were going to, you know, if we're going to raise this money, I don't want it to go to the Red Cross or any of these big, it'll never, the people will never get it. I want money to go directly to these families. And so I literally handed out checks to these families. And that, uh, the first night I went out, there were two or three people that came with me. And after that first night, I'll never forget the first woman uh, family that we went to was a woman who, uh, was pregnant and miscarried the day that, um, and uh, you know we walked into the house. I, I remember her father answered the door and we told him who we were and you know we knew that they had bills to pay and we just wrote checks to people and uh, it was a very difficult thing to do. Uh, but I became close with a number of the widows and widowers. Uh, and they said, you know, we want to do something for the, the rescue and recovery workers, you know, that have been digging, looking for any body parts and oh. stuff like that. And yeah. so we uh, went down there um, and connected with the Port Authority and uh, the night shift because, uh, you know, no one was allowed down in the pit at all. 
uh, and uh, the Port Authority allowed us in there. We were supposed to be there for one night, and we would go down at like, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning, and because that's when a lot of the work was being done. And I would go down there and I'd interview these men and women, police, fire, volunteers, um, clergy people. Uh, and uh, so we went down there one night and, and we interviewed a bunch of people and got a call the next day from the lieutenant and said, can you come back tonight? Um, they love talking to you and it's more therapeutic for them than talking to the shrinks. Did you do and this so on film? We filmed it all. Um, and then we also did at the Beacon Theater, did a concert for the rescue and recovery workers and we filmed that. And we turned that into a documentary that was about an hour long. Uh, and um, it was uh, my first docu-concert because we added documentary footage with the music. I was and, just gonna ask uh, you what a docu-concert is because we know you recently directed and wrote the docu-concert, Do Something and Vote. Yes. So which comes first? The concert comes first, and right? And then it becomes no, the, a documentary. Are you uh, the other out? way around? Yeah, the other way around. Okay. Um, in, bo in both cases, um, we were in the in the first case we were editing. Uh, we were we edited all of that video from the interviews up, and and showed it during the live concert. Ah. Oh. And 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 so we did it that way with uh, do something and vote. Uh, all I, I don't know if you were able to see it, but all of um, all of the video are, are things I was working on. We were working with um, uh, uh, John Stewart, who was working with the 9/11 uh, rescue and recovery workers who were dying from the toxic air down at Ground Zero. They were lied to that the air was okay, and they're all they've all been dying. And it took 18 years. It wasn't until 2019. For them to get fully get their health care fully covered, and That's these right. men, and these men and women would travel down to Washington D.C. monthly with stage four cancer, and lobby Congress to you know to pass their health care bill called it was called the Zdroga Act, uh, and um, so I was filming. Uh, and um, John Stewart and Governor John Field, who was running this organization, he was a rescue and recovery worker, but uh, was running this organization. And uh, you know, the people that we filmed uh, shortly after 9-11 when I was down there and the people we were filming uh, recently, um, a lot of them have died, you know, from rare, incredible diseases. And so... Um, uh, so I had all this footage. I also had footage of another film I'm working on called The Farmer's Father's Promise about a friend of mine, Mark Barden, who was a professional musician, and his son Daniel was murdered at uh, Sandy Hook Elementary School. And he uh, he is um, uh, kind of rewired himself from being a musician to starting Sandy Hook Promise, which has uh, non-political gun violence prevention programs, and they're in all in schools in all 50 states now. And it's just this amazing story. He's a brilliant, unbelievable musician, uh, played with you know 
everyone from Tim McGraw to uh, Cheryl Crow, and uh, and it's an amazing story. And and I had some of that already done, and a few things I was doing on climate change, and had that done. And we took all these topics that are were vitally are vitally important to this country and to the youth of this country, and we created it into this hour-long special that we did in conjunction with uh, Michelle Obama's When We All Vote and uh, uh, an organization called Cause, which uh, is a check, basically a charity. And um, uh, we pulled that together real quickly uh, and, uh, it, it, and called it Do Something and Vote. It was great. And we had music performances mixed with these stories, uh, uh, I'll send it to you guys. I know I should. I sent you, I think, a clip, uh, some clips on it. But yeah, yeah, I uh, saw a little teeny piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the John Stewart piece is incredible. If you've if you've never seen John in front of Congress, uh, literally shaming them into passing the bill, it is a piece of work. And what we would do is we we take it and um, the first segment is John talking in front of this wall um, where the names of all these people who have died uh, since 9-11, the healthcare and recovery workers who have died from these diseases on Long Island. And it was the ceremony and it's just incredibly moving and breathtaking uh, John's speech. And uh, we mixed that speech with Bruce Springsteen's You Are Missing. Oh, uh, and then the the and we tell the story of Ray Pfeiffer, who's kind of a, became a famous firefighter after that, who was one of the main people who would go down to Washington. And we became very, very close. And uh, Ray asked me uh, he was in hospice and he said, uh, Rick, uh, I have a lot to say before I die. Would you come down and interview me? And I did uh, SA, my partner and I went down. And uh, we interviewed him, and he did have a lot to say. Uh, and so we took some of that footage, which I couldn't even look at after Ray died, because we kind of became very close. And, uh, and uh, we mixed that with You're Missing and the scene uh, from... Uh, and the scene starts where Ray's there. It's the year before he dies. So he's at the ceremony the year before. And then we end the song with um, John Field going up and then reading Ray's name. And that scene ends, and we go to uh, <clears throat> uh, John Field and John Stewart saying, okay, we're not giving up, right? And uh, uh, we do, it, it, it just moves, in, in, and we mix John Stewart's speech in front of Congress with a song from Nathaniel Ratliff called, um, uh, what is it called? Time. It's called Time. Mm. And the main emphasis is, um, is, is John saying, you know, they're running out of time. It's the one commodity they don't have. Mm. And right. it, it was, it's just incredibly moving. So we did that. We want, we're turning that into a series. We're trying to, anyway. Um, and so, yeah, so I've been playing with I, I, this niche of music uh, just does something to people that adds something to a scene 
that words alone or pictures alone, it just brings it together and emphasizes. We did that with Harry Chapin's film. Every single scene has a song attached mm-hmm. to it. And it just yeah. helps you tell that story. Mary and I interviewed Tom Chapin okay. for one of our Late Boomers episodes about your documentary, When in Doubt, Do Something, which you were just referring to, about the late, great Harry Chapin, who was managed by my husband, Ken Cragen. Can you tell us all about how you came to do that and what it was like <laughs> shooting and researching that footage? Well, first and foremost, uh, in 1974, Harry came to our high school. Uh, and did uh, a concert and talked about hunger and poverty. And the entire school, I mean, everyone from janitors to coaches to teachers and all the students came to the auditorium in our school. And Harry, for two and a half hours, just mesmerized all of us. He sang some music. And 74 remembers when Cats in the Cradle came out, but Taxi was already a huge hit. And uh, if you grew up on Long Island, Harry Chapin was was the man right and uh he came to our school and i was i was blown away it was it was a year before he started why hunger but he was already talking about hunger and poverty and the issues and how we can help and he's encouraging people and uh and then after the show i went off to class and i came back a couple of hours later and harry was still there talking to students (laughs) uh uh you know harry can talk uh and um (laughs) So that was my indoctrination to Harry. Uh, not that, you know, I was a huge Harry Chapin fan. I liked his music, you know, um, but I was into other, I was into different music at that time, but, but he was certainly special. And, um, and then, you know, fast forward to the late 1990s when I was working with Carl and heard the Hungerthon, Bill on the Hungerthon on the radio. And we did the Blue Suede Shoot thing. And I got very, very close with Bill Ayers. Uh, Father Bill Ayers, who was Harry's partner in Wyhunk. And uh, I went to, um, for the John Stewart film, I went to interview Bill uh, because Bill was a big part of raising money for the 9-11 rescue and recovery workers as I, and the families, which I mentioned to you earlier. And uh, I wanted to interview him about that time. And uh, I didn't know if we would make it in the film, but... Bill is a great interview. And, and so at the end of the interview, uh, I said to him, uh, and this was my, my partner's idea, uh, S.A. Barron, yeah, you ought to ask him about, you know, Harry Chapin, you know, maybe we can do the film. And I said, I'm sure someone's already doing the film or the family doesn't want to do the film. And, and <laughs> at the end of the interview, I said to Bill, Bill, how come no one has ever done a documentary on you and Harry? It's just an amazing story. And he goes, I don't know. Why don't you do it? <laughs> <laughs> and so I really contemplated doing it. I, I, I didn't, I don't want to do films. You know, a lot of documentaries on music artists end in, tr- in some sort of tragedy related to something they did. Or they're a, an abuser of one kind or another. Uh, and you end up kind of disliking the person you know, at the end of the film. Mm. With Harry, there was none of that, you know? He was he was just such a compassionate uh, person uh, that... Did because good. his death was such a tragic accident. Yeah. And oh. his death was such a tragic accident. Um, and, um, but what he was doing, but what really uh, 
moved me and my partner into doing this film is what happened after Harry's death. You know, when you think about the fact that here we are in the middle of a pandemic and why hunger and Long Island Cares and the Harry Chapin Foundation are on the front lines of that pandemic in a big way. And so it's kind of like Ken, you know, you think about, you know, what he did uh, with the others with We Are the World and the fact that they're still helping people, you know, here we are in 2021 and they're still helping people. Well, it's the same thing with that. And that is what really interests me. So in with the Harry, so Harry, that's how I, I wrote a treatment uh, and uh, Bill set up a meeting with uh, Jason Chapin and Sandy Chapin, Jason's Harry's son and, and, and Sandy was his wife. And, uh, and uh, I, they liked the treatment we met. And um, before we even had an agreement, uh, we filmed Sandy that very day and off we went and we, you know, one of the things that Sandy said, which was part of our business plan anyway, but Sandy said, well, if you're going to do this, then you have to give two thirds of your ownership away to the charities. That's a Sandy thing. That's Sandy but move. I have to tell our listeners, if you haven't yet, you've got to watch that documentary. It's called When in Doubt, Do Something. Do not miss this. It's 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, right? You've got to watch this. It's and on- is it on Apple and Amazon? It's on Apple, Amazon. It's on your local cable. You can get the DVD. Um, it, you know, uh, and it's a feel-good movie. It, you're, you will watch that film, and you will feel better after watching it. I uh, loved it. It was wonderful. Um, you have, uh, you mentioned uh, m- the musician Mark Barden, whose son was s- murdered in, you know, at Sandy Hook Elementary. Um, you have a documentary coming up on him, and also um, the first game, another project, I believe you yes. have development about Native American sports. Can you elaborate on those? Sure. Um, the Mark Barden story uh, is is really about his transformation uh, from being a musician uh, and a and a and a music teacher. His wife Jackie is a school teacher, and they have three kids. And their youngest, Daniel, uh, was murdered that day. And uh, all his kids were in his band. Uh, and um, you know, Mark was a stay-at-home dad because he worked as a musician at night and no matter what time he got in he was up early in the morning to get the kids off to school his wife would go off to teach uh and the day that daniel was was murdered he asked his father to teach him how to play the piano while they were waiting for the bus and mark taught him how to play jingle bells because it was you know it was around christmas time and uh he picked it up you know right away uh, and so the, the film is really uplifting and inspirational. I know that part of it's sad, but we don't spend a lot of time on that, you know, uh, yeah. we, 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 because we want to talk about all the good work that he and some of the other uh, parents, uh, Nicole Hockley, whose son was murdered that day, he, he and Nicole uh, started Sandy Hook Promise, uh, and uh, uh, they've they they've created these programs that are gun prevention programs and not about second amendment rights the nra, NRA doesn't bother them uh they do get death threats uh unfortunately oh. 
Uh, and uh, but um, they they created these programs which work. They've saved thousands of lives, not just uh, from people willing to commit violence, but a lot of kids who uh, are suicidal. Uh, and uh, they've they've they they've it, it's it's an amazing story, and it took Mark years throughout our filming uh, to get him to want to play music again, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, and then he does, and so the the film is just filled with great music artists, uh, Susan Tedeschi and, and Derek Trucks, um, who are amazing. Uh, and our friends of Mark's, and they're in the film, uh, not just musically, uh, but um, uh, but uh, we we filmed uh, an interview when Mark. So this film is not out uh, yet, right? We can't see Father's Promise yet. No, you cannot see Father's Promise or uh, or the other film. Uh, uh-huh. uh, so the other film the other, is first game. The first game is uh, a, a Native American film. And it's about lacrosse, the sport of lacrosse, oh, which good. was cre- created by um, the Onondaga Nation, uh, which was uh, six tribes that got together and created Onondaga. It's outside of Syracuse, New York. They're an incredibly, incredibly poor community. Uh, they're very traditional. The uh, Onondagas, the Iroquois, um, they kids uh, are, are not taught English until they get into high school. Uh, wow. They speak the native language. They do not do casinos or anything like that. Lacrosse, uh, every baby is, at birth is given a lacrosse stick, which uh, they keep throughout their lives. And um, uh, they are buried with the lacrosse stick. And Interesting. The, and 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 so, but it's it's the film is is about the 1984 Iroquois team, which was the first team. I'm not going to get into the details, but it dovetails into the current Iroquois team, who are not allowed in international play, even though they're the best team in the world and they invented this the sport. They're not allowed in the Olympics or the World Games because they view themselves as being their own nation. It's the Onondaga nation. And they're not recognized uh, by um, uh, by the Olympic Committee as a sovereign nation. That's kind of tragic. Yeah. And it's tragic. So in 2022, the World Games happened to be in Alabama. And they weren't allowed to be in the World Games because it's a precursor to the Olympics. And <clears throat> Ireland... Uh, said, hey, we're not going to be in it, uh, but we want our slot to go to the Air Force. And um, so they gave up that slot, but even though they're going to be in the World Games, they can't qualify for the Olympics because the Olympics, you know, Mm. view them as as a sovereign nation. Uh, So uh, uh, so anyway, and there's a lot of inter-stories. This is a great... I think a, a great story, and I can't mention who we're partnering with just yet because the deal's not done. Um, <laughs> but but it's a our co-producer is uh, is uh, got the uh, the number one uh, the number one uh, sports film out there right now, also uh, on Na- uh, Native American culture. And 
also in development, you're planning a documentary about my husband, Ken Craig. Yes, which we're Ken really Craig and We Are the World. Uh, yes. Tell us a, very briefly about that because we're going to run out of time. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, to us, uh, you, if you view Ken from our perspective of, you know, most of the films we do are, are films about, not most, all of them are about activism. You know, people that do something to change the world. And I, I don't think there's many people in this world that have done more for humanity than Ken Craig. Uh, and if you, and if you look at his career and the people he managed and, um, and what he did with We Are the World and Hands Across America, and the fact he's still working on, on things with uh, Hands Around the World, um, is um, we think a great movie. It's, it's, again, another positive, uplifting story about regular people doing extraordinary things. And uh, not that Ken is regular, uh, but basically... <laughs> he's very regular. <laughs> no, he's, he's a regular guy. No, He's a regular guy. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so uh, we're really, really excited about uh, that that film and got more excited as I was writing the treatment for it. Um, we, we're excited to to get filming on it. That's going to be done exciting. Some filming. Uh, yeah. Emma, em, Emma, your daughter is involved. Yeah. Film, uh, and her husband. Yes, uh, they've already shot some footage. They shot some footage. And we yeah. have some footage from when we interviewed Ken for the Harry Chapin film, which he was great in. So we have a head start. Yeah. And we'd like to tell our listeners that our guest today on Late Boomers has been Rick Korn, founder of In Plain View Entertainment. And please be sure, if you have not yet, to watch the Harry Chapin documentary, When in Doubt, Do Something. And you can find that on Amazon Prime and everywhere, everywhere on your on-demand and everything. Thank you so much, Rick, for today. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Rick. Me. Yes, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to EWNpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? <laughs> I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating $1 million in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. 
It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven-module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand, and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.